I'm a stoic man. I don't cry at movies, Lily. Welcome to Groovy Movies. My name is Lily Austin. And my name's James Brailsford. Hello. Hello. And this week we are talking about plot twists, specifically what makes a killer plot twist. Yeah, what makes, because it is an interesting question. I think um, even defining what a plot twist was took us a few attempts um, over the past few weeks um, because sometimes. It did, it did. It, is it a plot twist or is it just a surprise? So we had to even. Yeah to get our heads around the definition of a, a surprise versus a twist. Yeah, it, I mean, it was particularly very difficult because for loads of the films we thought of, we'd both seen them, or actually James in particular. James, you've seen, you seem to either have seen most films of a plot twist or you know the twist, even if you haven't seen the movie itself. <laughs> I'm such a, I'm, I'm, I annoy myself. <laughs> Which made it tricky because there are a couple of films we're talking about here that, uh, we both seen and loved, and we and we could remember. You know, I could remember the the feeling of surprise, so it made sense to talk about. It. But we really wanted to try and find a couple that we could each we could each talk about one where we're watching it on this viewing. The yeah. twist was fresh for us because that feeling when you're first like, oh my god, yeah, like it. It's a, it's a, it's a good one, um, and um, and I think you'd seen all three, haven't you? And I had, but I hadn't seen Atonement. Is that how we what we got to in the end? That's it. Well, I mean, that was the funny thing, right? Because initially, all I think at least at least two of them that we had as our as our we'd penciled in were ones that I hadn't seen, but you or you had or you knew the twist for. And then, kind of as we as we continued thinking about it, we realised that some were more of a surprise, yeah, or. Or didn't quite, the twist didn't quite work anymore because some twists have kind of, they're very much tethered to the time in which they were made and don't quite yeah. have the same effect now. That was Absol- kind of an interesting revelation. That was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, the, 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 the times have moved on and what might have been seen as a twist now isn't really a twist at all. Um, yeah, full disclosure, that was, I think we should talk about it actually because it's kind oh, of yeah, interesting, sure. right? So James suggested we watch The Crying Game because he knew of the twist. I actually won't give it away in case anyone wants to watch it. But the yeah. interesting thing about it was it was very much, it's sort of a love story type twist. Mm. And the revelation of it was very much a huge thing, right? You told me in the 90s when that film first yeah. came out. Like, because I've not, I've not seen the film. I just, just, I remember on lists of like top twists in movies, it's often been around there. So I just was aware of the twist ending yeah. and that it was seen as a, as a big twist. Yeah, and when I and I watched it before James and was very confused because when the twist revealed itself, the surprise bit of it for me was the fact that the main character didn't know and was surprised by the twist. I'm not explaining right. it very yeah, well, yeah. but basically I was so confused because it the the thing that was meant to be a surprise and a shock reveal was very very obvious to me from the get-go. And it's just kind of, I mean, it was actually quite fascinating to watch and see how times have changed and what the messages of the film and obviously the good intention behind it, but how that just doesn't like translate to a contemporary audience. It was very Absolutely, interesting. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, we're not talking so, about that. Yeah, no. But I, th- I think what you said to me when we were trying to figure out, is it a surprise or is it a plot twist? And I was suddenly doubting myself about everything, but it, you, you <laughs> nailed it when, uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said that a plot twist fundamentally changes what you think of the film you've just watched up to that point. So it's it, it's fundamentally, you you will look back and go, oh, right, I didn't realise that's what really was going on. Um, right, so it's, it, yeah. it fundamentally changes your understanding of the film. And also it, a good plot twist, I think, will make you want to possibly re 
watch the film. So it's it's a good yeah. device when well executed for getting repeat viewing of your film because you almost want to watch it. Now you know the twist. You can have a second pass. Another form of enjoyment of of that kind of film is to to rewatch it, knowing the twist. Like, oh yes, that's how they did that bit. Or I was deliberately misled here because you assumed something else. Which a lot all yeah. these films have that kind of element through it. That's true, but I do think it's a very very fine line between. Just because every film needs to have surprises, predict a film being predictable is the classic insult, right? Is oh, it's very predictable, sure. and so, but I so they all need surprises. But I think actually, being a twist, it's like oof, it's it, the line between is very very fine. I think even with these films, I I do think they are all twists, but they 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 edge it at certain points. <laughs> Sure, sure, and we'll we'll get into that. I mean, again, just focusing on what makes a good twist was a really interesting exercise because you you think all these things, you know, is it a good twist, bad twist? Because I think um, I've just given the benefits of what I consider a good twist of doing, which it um, not only does it make you want to watch the film again, but I think a good twist should feel earned and it should. Mm. Um, Lee, it should reflect what the film you are watching is about. So a good twist should feed into the theme, should feed into what the the story is trying to tell you. Whereas I think a bad twist, a badly executed twist, like I'm thinking of Jim Carrey's number 27, I think it's called number 23. It's such a bad twist that it, it makes you look back on the film and just think I've just been like gotcha'd I've just been I've wasted two hours of my life it just it just <laughs> so a badly executed twist is 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 almost the opposite effect of a good one it will just make you trash the film what do you reckon about the Wizard of Oz the classic wake up and it was all a dream oh the worst yeah kind of twist total cop out I mean <laughs> it, 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 it is but then it's the Wizard of Oz so somehow it gets a pass I know it really does. well for me I think <laughs> in a in a story that's kind of annoying and, and rubbish but within a film because you've seen everything up to that point like watching a film is like watching a dream like it's mm. real within the within the movie but you but it's obviously not real this isn't reality you're not watching a documentary so I kind of don't mind it as much yeah yeah and I you know I, yeah, I don't need things to be a dream they can be just surrealistic because they're in a film I guess yeah okay well let's get into it you sure well actually before we need to give a big spoiler alert for what is to come i'm so sorry having tried to move yeah. away from spoilers since series one we're now diving straight back knee into deep this in spoilers <laughs> <laughs> but they're all fairly well, you may well have seen them all because we're discussing psycho atonement and parasite so we kind of deliberately went for ones that are quite well known so hopefully you'll have seen them or just pause right now and watch yeah, absolutely. And come back to us. Come back to us once you've watched. So, James, what's our first movie? Well, I mean, I did just say first but... <laughs> movie on the line is it features uh, what is now, who is now becoming a series regular on the show. It uh, features Anthony Perkins in his uh, career-defining role. I would say it's Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. That's right. Got it. Yeah, I think I think Anthony. Ho I was going to say Anthony Hopkins. Love him too. Anthony Perkins <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. is fast becoming one of my favourite actors. And before we did this podcast, I really did not give him a lot of thought. I have to say, same here. Absolutely same here. And rewatching Psycho, his performance is incredible in it. It's 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 a definitive uh, portrayal of like a, a, a kind of a psychotic character. Let's say he's always trying to do something interesting. He's he's always engaging to watch in the films we've watched so far. That's it. If we wanted to do a repeat viewing episode and just do Anthony Perkins movies, I think we would see throughout that. Even though he's, he seems to only really play a villain, at least in the movies we've seen him in, every villain is totally different. It's incredible. Yeah, 
Because <laughs> you know they all want him to do his psycho performance. He's like, I'm not going to do my psycho performance. They're getting a different Anthony Perkins this time. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, in, in case you haven't seen the movie, for a quick plot summary, Psycho follows a woman called Marion, played by Janet Lee, as she goes on the run with a suitcase of cash and on the journey finds herself at a motel run by the aforementioned Anthony Perkins, a kind of endearing and sweet character, but also slightly unnerving mm. and madness ensues. Madness ensues. I feel like that's yeah, my ending I, to every plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty, pretty decent plot summary of Psycho. It, it's a film that I um, I actually watched Psycho three about ten times before I ever watched Psycho one, just because you know <laughs> kids do crazy shit, and so Psycho three was more readily available. So when I came to Psycho, it just seemed a bit quote unquote boring because it seemed slow and in black and white whereas psycho 3 is like a, a slasher film directed by anthony right. perkins so but 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 i've rewatched it this is the third time i've watched it and this time i absolutely loved it you know like i, I was in you know my, my teenage dalliances with psycho 3 are long in the past and uh yeah i could see it as just an absolute classic uh not only of like a a, a a kind of psychological horror, I don't know, horror film, but also just mm. of a plot twist film. It's almost the definitive, this is how you do plot twists. Absolutely. I mean, can we just pull, cycle back for just a second to say, amazing that Anthony Perkins was the director of Psycho 3. That is, that right? is truly special. <laughs> that is only. I definitely want and to see it. It was his debut directing film as well. Yeah, yeah. It's very stylish Incredible. from what I remember, very visually stylish. But um, yeah. <laughs> but I had the same thing as you, actually. I remember as a teenager or sort of maybe preteen watching Psycho and thinking it was good, but it was a bit slow and like yeah. old fashioned movie type vibes. But actually watching yep. it this time, I didn't find that at all. Like I really did. Same. I thought the pacing was perfect and it was just yep. masterclass and good cinematic storytelling. I, I completely agree. I, I was gripped. Like, um, I often, when I was watching films at home, I often have trouble just kind of sitting in one run and watching this. And this, I did I did in a couple of runs, but they were long stints. I was really drawn into it. And I don't know if you, I mean, this is quite a popular thing known about Psycho is that Hitchcock, he was very well known for promoting his films by doing publicity stunts. And the publicity mm. stunt for Psycho was that you weren't allowed into the cinema once the film started. And um, I, my personal take on that, I mean, one, it's a, just a good publicity stunt. But two, I think you you have to be watching the film from the very first frame and paying full attention because even though we all know what happened in Psycho, um, you are drawn into this very domestic drama about uh, a woman who works at a, a, like a finance office or something, but she's an office worker. And you're drawn into from the very beginning of the film into this relationship he has with this guy and they want to elope together. And even though I know where the film's going, I get sucked into this drama. You kind of forget yeah. that what's happening. What, where are we heading is the film called Psycho, but you kind of almost immediately forget that. And I think you need yeah. to be sat in the cinema. You don't need to be, you, you shouldn't miss the first few minutes because that's what draws you into the, uh, the central characters of Marion Crane's drama. Absolutely, yeah. I think if to have been someone who watched it when it first came out, um, oh. it must have been a very, very different experience because this film is, that, that shower scene the, the first twist of the film is such an iconic scene that most oh. people have seen, even if they haven't seen the rest of it. When you're watching it now, it's sort of more like it's not what 
the twist will be, but when it will be, because you recognize the protagonist, um, Marion Crane, Janet Lee, from the beginning, and you you know that she's going to be killed at some point. It's just a matter of when. So actually, when? I think for view, viewing it, what's what you really get watching it the, today is the the surprise of seeing how the whole film plays out and the fact that she isn't killed off until the middle point, and that is yeah. that is that is the main. It's sort of a it is a narrative twist, right? It's like subverting storytelling conventions because we're used to either the pr- the protagonist being there until the end or being killed off, you know, in the first couple of minutes. It's kind of one or the other. Yeah, I think when I first ever watched Psycho, I was like, come on, get to the shower scene. You know, you, yeah, I, I assumed that would be happening very early on because the film's called Psycho and we all know about the shower scene. And then you watch it like, oh, wow. It's almost at the halfway point where you've invested so totally into Marion Crane, the character, and you're behind her. And, like, and, and she's a complicated character because she's she's committed a crime, you know, so... So in the film, yes. she's she's taken off with forty plus thousand dollars of money to set, help set up her new life. So she's the, you know you suddenly she's a complicated character. She's she's doing mm. some she's out of her comfort zone. So you you kind of buy into her. You kind of want her to even though she's done something criminal, you kind of want to succeed uh, in what she's doing. So it's a masterclass in. Um, audience empathy because I think not mm. only are you made to empathise with Marion Crane she's a very easily empathetic character but you also when you first meet Anthony Hopkins and Norman Bates you empathise with him and even after mm. when he's murdered Marion and he's disposing of the body there's a moment where he's trying to push the car into the lake and it kind of stops and your your heart stops too and it's like oh my god for I'm now empathising with with Norman Bates I'm like oh no the 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 car isn't sinking and in that moment like Hitchcock's a genius yeah well exactly well because the true twist of this film is the fact that the protagonist keeps changing so we're following Mm. Janet Lee's character Marin for the first 45 minutes and like you said we get completely invested in her and then right before she's about to die she has this conversation with Anthony Perkins and they kind of connect a little bit they're talking about I can't even exactly remember what the conversation is, but it leads to her deciding that she wants to go back. It's been it's about being in their traps that we're That's all trapped. It, thank you. you know? Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. It's a yeah, great, which is great scene, by the way. Amazing, powerful scene with the watchful with the stuffed animals all around, really chilling. And yes, it's speaking to the whole theme of the film about being trapped and in cages and trying to break out of them or just living in them and accepting them and that leads her you understand from from everything she says that she's actually realized what a mistake she's making by by doing this and she's going to go back to phoenix where she came from so you get you're you're feeling hopeful for her and want her to escape even though you know you know this can't (laughs) that can't exactly be how it is and then after she is murdered which at that point you you don't know who who has murdered her you think it's anthony perkins Norman Bates' mother, who's done the the murder, yep. it then switches to Norman Bates' perspective, and you're following him as he's disposing of the yeah. body. And you're right, like you say, you like in that moment, I was I was thinking when he was getting into her car, I was I remember actually feeling quite like hopeful. Yeah, he, maybe he would be able to get away with it. Like yeah. no one was, <laughs> no was going to come around here. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a masterclass in in, in like with with films. They're all about point of view, so they're they're either and they're either going to be objective or subjective. So this film is a subjective film. We mm. uh, well, it, sorry, it flips between subjective and objective. So subjectively, we are with Marion Crane. I mean, we're even in her head. We have the mm. as she's driving in a car, she's run off with the money from her bosses. She 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 fantasizes about what they're saying about. Her. So we're about as subjective yeah. as we can get in a film. And even when she's in the infamous shower scene do we cut to a scene outside as we see the mother approach no we are in the shower we're completely with marion crane so we the first time we see uh the the attacker who's going to kill her in the shower scene is through the frosted um shower curtain so we are completely i mean but we've what's happened there sorry we, we've ever so slightly gone objective we're in the shower with marion that's subjective but we the audience see something she doesn't see which is the uh, body coming through the door so we've slipped to we're with the character but we're seeing something she doesn't so it's like sub subjective and objective mix and then once the murder happens we then cleanly we're following anthony perkins where you see him dispose of the body we are now subjective with anthony perkins we need now follow him as he tries to dispose of the body it's like holy shit and then we like you say we switch characters we cut away to marion's sister who we didn't even know about yes but that and but then but kind of bef- well she she comes in but then we follow the detective right there's a private detective mm. and that oh, i think is about the him true... now yeah exactly and i think that is the true for a modern audience that is the true twist because i i even forgot this watching it again that he is then on the case and he's he's hot on the trail and then he gets murdered and that isn't that is surprising because you expect the detective yep. to kind of save the day and then when we go back to Marion's sister, it's it's also to Marion's boyfriend, who we saw at the very start of the film, who, who you barely even kind of register, honestly, in that first yeah. scene. As storytelling goes, you don't expect the boyfriend to really come back. And then it becomes yeah. a film, basically, where him and, and Marion's sister become the two protagonists and the ones who ultimately save the day and, and, and yeah, the- uncover the truth and the final twist. So many twists. Yeah, so many. Well, with so many twists, and I think each twist is a different type of twist. So, for example, the detective, ju- the, t- the detective uh, getting murdered. That's just a classic jump scare. It's like a surprise twist. You know, it's the classic. Yeah, that's more boom. of a surprise, right? Yeah, be- because you know, so, so I mean, it's still a surprise when Marion Crane gets killed. But the purpose of that twist is to say that this is not the film you thought you were watching. It's a huge mm. plot twist. You know, whereas yeah. uh, the and the, the detective getting murdered is more a scare uh, twist. But also, I think what that twist. Serves to do is to consolidate what the film's been doing thus far which is to say you don't know how this film's going to turn out because when the detective turns up you're like oh he's because he's he's portrayed as very capable he's no idiot he's almost immediately knows there's something up with anthony perkins so you kind of think oh he is the hero that's going to save the day Uh uh-uh plot twist he's now killed so i think as an audience member you are now like how's this film going to turn out because yeah. even capable characters and, and i have to say out of the t- out of all the characters we're presented uh, with uh, marion's sister you know she doesn't seem particularly you don't think she's going to save the day and you can't you think they both seem a bit unlikely because we've had the detective exactly. killed you know you just yeah uh, and so I think it's a, that the second twist with the detective being killed is a, is, is a twist also to really turn the knife to say you don't know where this film's going now because we've done this twice. Absolutely, that's the, this was the first popular slasher film. There was that movie Peeping yeah. Tom before, but this was the first movie in in, fil- in film history to be a true like slasher film. So 
all of the what what have come to be classic tropes within horror. Hitchcock, this was the first time. <laughs> so I think in that sense, those later twists, those those surprises do still count as twists because at that point that genuinely would have been a twist for that audience. Absolutely, yeah. And um, but what I think is interesting is the the third and final twist, because all the way through the film, well, half from the halfway point when we meet Norman Bates, there's always this talk of his overbearing mother, his controlling mother, and the way it's presented is it's the mother who's doing the murders. Um, and yes, so exactly. the the, the, f- the final twist when we realise that we've not been dealing with an actual physical representation of his mother, that it's a part of um, Norman Bates' personality, he's adopted the persona of his mother, that's the final twist. And that's the one that kind of feeds into, that's the twist that doesn't, it feeds into all the things that the film's about, which is like duality, you know, that the people can mm. have two sides, that Marion Crane can appear to be the all-American kind of good woman working at her office job, but she's actually a criminal for the first time. Um, and that Anthony yeah. Perkins can appear to present himself as just a regular kind of a slightly awkward character running a motel. He's actually, a, you know, so the, the twist is an, a satisfying narrative twist because not only do because it's set up a mystery. It's answering the question. There's a question that we want answered through the second half of the film. What? Who is Norma Bates's mother, and what is? How is she operating? And so, when we finally revealed that, it's a twist reveal, but it also feeds into the the theme of the film. Yeah, absolutely. And this very Freudian psychoanalytic themes of the mother and the you know the mother son relationship and yeah, all that kind of salacious, sinister, creepy stuff. Yeah, it's all bubbling under the way. I mean, and they, they even literally have like a, a psychoanalyst or a therapist who's talked to him. And it's like, I think nowadays in it goes on way too long for modern audiences because we get it basically. But for for film, you know, it's the first yeah. time I think that a, a criminal was portrayed as psychologically complex. You know, up until that point, mm. the you know the killer killed because they were mad or they 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 just didn't like someone. They had a vendetta. Here, it's a, a bit more sophisticated for an audience of nineteen sixty. Or, yeah, or for, you know, some monetary gain or something along those lines. There was always some actual quite logical reason oh, yeah. for murder, even if it's unexcusable. Yeah, and so, sorry, can I just wheel back to that? Because that's one bit I was watching, like, this constant, not constant, sorry, there's a couple of occasions where the money has its own shot in the film. So Marion Crane is stealing an envelope full of money. And so um, there's a, because the, Hitchcock has what we call the storytelling camera. So Hitchcock's camera sometimes moves, not motivated by anything apart from the director, wants to emphasise something. So there's a shot of Marion preparing to go on the run. The camera moves deliberately towards the money left on the bed. So... And it fills the frame. It goes from a wide shot to the frame is filmed, filled by the money. And then when she's in Bates Motel, uh, the, a similar shot happens. We see the, the the move to the envelope and the money. So there's so much emphasis being played on in the story on that money because exactly we would think that killing someone for money is a clear motive. And then what does Anthony Perkins do? He cleans up the motel. And, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to forget about the money and it's going to be his undoing. But no, he just picks it up, doesn't even look at it, puts it in the boot of the car and it's gone and it's out of the picture yep. but even yep. the other characters are talking about money being the motive so what he's doing yep. again he's, he's he's subverting the idea that a killer might kill for money exactly yes because that's that because that is the motivator at the start of the film you think that's gonna continue yeah. 
to be part of the part of the plot, but not as. And it's cool. a huge red herring. It's like a, almost yeah. like a, a definitive red herring in a movie. That absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, th- this film, I have to say, you know, it, it's a very good film. It's satisfying. It's really well made. I mean, it's just I could talk about how well the direction is. You know, it's flawless throughout um, and you get three plot twists you get at least three plot twists for your money so yeah. as far as plot twists go and they're all good plot twists they all are very satisfying yeah 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 there's a reason this film is a classic <laughs> strong recommendation mm. from both of us <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah absolutely okay so shall we move on to a very different kind of a plot twist should we move on to atonement Yes, please. And this was the one I hadn't seen. And frustratingly, there was no way around this, Lily. It's a shame that I knew that this had a plot twist in it. Because I know. I, like, you know, the classic would have been if you'd have said, James, let's do some period drama films. You slip this one in the three. And then you said, when we were recording oh. this uh, this podcast, he said, ha-ha, James, plot twist. The episode we're recording is about plot twist. Like, ah! So it, it, there's, there was no way I'd around it, Lily. I wish i Why didn't I think about it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the most ridiculous elaborate way to do things (laughs) well we yeah we had this whole thing of like what films are we going to do it would be great if we could see a film where we we didn't know what the plot just was so we're coming to it fresh and it was really difficult to think to come up with one because James we I discovered (laughs) in in our pre-prep is like a plot twist aficionado aficionado yeah (laughs) this is an area of interest for you it is. I don't know what it is. It's stupid because I've even know the plot twists of films I've not seen. Uh, I don't know why. You know. Yeah. What is it? But, um, Tell me. <laughs> I don't Let's think know. About it's it just a like bit. it's almost like being told, "Don't whatever you do, don't press that button." You're just like, "Oh, but I, j- I just want to just, just a quick little <laughs> press." What's the harm? And then you've spoiled it and you've blown something up. So you know, when and, you and yourself and... love coming to a film knowing literally nothing about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but <laughs> I know, but that's almost to against. I've had to de- institute that rule to go against my own worst instincts. It's almost like I have to know nothing about it. I have to, which means don't look anything up, James. Yeah, because quite late into this, I was like, okay, actually, what about atonement? Because it's a different kind of a twist to the other two mm. that we'd settled on. And James was like, oh, I didn't even, I haven't seen it. I didn't know there was a plot twist. And then I get a mess from him. 10 minutes into him watching it being like <laughs> is this the fortress I'm like oh my god no don't think about it it's this is such a beautiful film and the power it of the twist is that you're not it doesn't feel like a film that's going to have a twist that's not really that kind it, of movie like you said it's a period movie set in world war 2 predominantly I, I dismissed it at the time because I, I mean, I'm, again, I was I was young as foolishly. I'm looking like I love Joe Wright; he's a great director. Um, uh, but for some reason, I was like, oh, it's it's a posh people, it's Kieran Knightley thing. In a it's dress. Kieran Knightley. I'm out. I, you know, I'm I'm just like It just sounds like a Sunday afternoon, watch it with my grandma type film, and it really isn't. And it, I did it at a complete disservice. So I am glad that you suggested it because it's a great film, and I'm re- I really enjoyed watching it. It's so classy, so classy oh well i'm really glad you enjoyed it because i i hoped she would but this is a film that yeah when it first came out i saw it in the cinema and then i i've watched it many many times so anyway should i do a quick plot summary in case anyone hasn't seen it yes please for those crazy people who are still listening and want it to be spoiled but I get it I get it listen the thing is I get those people I am one of you if you're listening to this you haven't seen a tome be like fuck it I want to I want to listen to what they've got to say anyway I understand I understand so here's the plot uh, yeah, summary that is kind of 
what I generally do anyway. Um, so yeah, so basically it's a film, like I said, it's it's a period film, but it's set across three time periods. So we start in 1935 with a family in a, like you said, a posh house in the country. And then we move on to scenes in Britain and France during World War II. And then finally we finish like, like in kind of contemporary life. It's like, it was made in 2007 and that's kind of when the, the final scene is. But we basically follow three principal characters Bryony Tallis who is a a young girl in the in the earlier scenes who's who loves to write and her sister played by Kira Knightley and the uh the housekeeper's son um Robbie Turner played by James McAvoy and basically Kieran Kira Knightley and James McAvoy realize that they love each other at the start of the film and then in large part due to the actions of Bryony Kira Knightley's sister mm. they're torn apart and then, but then World War Two comes in, and it also kind of keeps them apart. So it's kind of about like star-crossed lovers who can't be together. It's a proper. It's, it's a very tragic story, and you know, I, I got totally into it, and it's like it's it's heartbreaking because they get you know they they get so close, and then the rest, the majority of the film is how distant they are and how it doesn't work out because of uh, the actions of uh, Bryony Tallis, uh, who is an incredible fictional character. I was really, I thought she was because. In Sersha Ronan's performance and the, her actions, she's essentially mm. a, like a child sociopath. She's she's you know she's manipulative. She <laughs> oh lies. She but she but she's also a little you know she's a young girl she who's jealous. A child sociopath. I mean, what is she like? She straight up lies to people because she she wants to get um to get James McAvoy's character into trouble because she's on because she's jealous of her sister. Well, you know what? It's interesting because so this this film, just like with Psycho, in fact, this film was based on a book of the same name written by Ian McEwan. And uh, and I've I've read the book and it's a incredible book. And Atonement is one of the best, I would say, like adaptations of a book I've ever seen. They're very, very mm. close. Um, right. But the thing that you get from reading this book I mean, I didn't really, I should, of course, focus on the film is that what I bring to watching it is is a little bit of, I remember something of the character from the book and ah. it's not quite so, I think the film makes it slightly more, it does kind of press on this idea that she is in love with Robbie and then part of the lie is because she's jealous that he clearly is in love with her sister and also yeah. that she did see him. She did, so basically, we're going to spoil it, but basically... The film centers on the fact that in that first kind of setting, Juno Temple's character Lola is attacked by Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Paul Marshall. Brilliant cast in this. And Bryony Tallis discovers them. And then when the police come, she says that it was Robbie Turner. Her lie leads to him, his life being ruined forever. But in the in the book, she she doesn't actually see the person. She isn't sure. So it's less, it's ah. less, the film definitely, I guess it, in a way it doesn't matter because we're talking about the film. But for me, I think it's a little bit more nuanced about what's going on in Bryony's house's mind. She is totally self-involved for sure, but I think all children are. Um, right. Because, yeah, in, in the film, it's it's uh, it's unambiguously she sees Benedict Cumberbatch attacking uh, Juno Car- Temple's character, uh, Lola, yeah. sorry. So that um, is what I yeah, should it's, focus it's, on. I just don't want to. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
Yeah. But you and, sound and, just you know, like James also... McAvoy. I watched an interview with him and Kira Knightley, and he was like, Bride has a monster. She's a sociopath. She's, he really hates her, even like in the later yeah. scenes. Are you, are you with him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it totally. I mean, I mean, like because as well, just the filmmaking techniques that the director uses when Brian E's character is around. I mean, I I love them. It's like she almost has her own, you know, like Darth Vader as the Imperial March that accompanies every scene that Darth Vader's Vader's Darth Vader is striding <laughs> along a corridor, and you're like, dun, 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 dun. she has this clacking of typewriters every time she's storming through the house, like clack 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 clack, yeah. and it, it's great because it sums up her character and it's really intense and it's like short sharp bursts and it's, it's very mm. uh, kind of almost mm. like cold and clinical and when we come back to the character later in the Second World War when it's played by a different actress by Rommel Agari um, that noise accompanies her again it's, and she's walking down a corridor and now as a nurse and like there's a feeling of dread when that character comes in and when the event really happens that puts James McAvoy in, in prison when he's pulled away the camera stays on her face on Sir Sharon and looking out of the window and she is cold there's not a flicker of emotion and in fact the camera pushes right into her eye from like a wide, wider shot showing her face and her upper body it ends on her eye and she doesn't even blink it's like she's taking it all in. Yeah, yeah. I do I do think that so much of what happens is about the fact that there isn't the world she lives in and grows up in is a is one where there's no communication and she's very isolated. So she mm. creates stories to kind of control the chaos of the world around her, but she's also it's also a way of, you know, entertaining herself because her parents are pretty much absent. Her dad's never around. Her her mom is emotionally unengaged and like suffers with these headaches. And even when she, the the initial the misunderstanding is part, in part because she discovers Robbie and Cecilia in the library together. Mm. They're having sex basically, and she's and she doesn't understand what she sees, and no one explains it to her. No one says anything to her, so she is terrified. Thinks that Robbie has attacked her sister. So it's not simply just that she is a sort of a sociopath who's 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 committing crimes it's also that she is a child who doesn't understand the world around her and no one will explain it to her I, I think I think what you're saying is quite right, but that sounds like detail that's in the book that isn't in the film. Like in that library sequence, I saw it as like, she, what you're just saying is very, very nuanced. And I didn't pick up on that in the film alone. I saw that she walked into, uh, you know, two people about to have sex or in the middle of having sex. And uh, she was just, she was she stunned terrified. silent. She goes, Cecilia, like her voice is like quivering. She looks yeah, terrified. Sure. Sure. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I guess I didn't pick up on it then. That, that that's yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And admittedly, I've seen it so many times, so I sort of pick up on every little thing. And you're. And it's true. Mm. I am also coloured by the book. I love that with the, we haven't even really got to the twist yet. We're just debating it. See, this is a great. It speaks to how good <laughs> is this she film a is. So, or is she not one yeah, of our favourite subjects? <laughs> so see if yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Does she? <laughs> do we put her in the same bucket with Anthony Perkins or no? <laughs> yes, 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 in the same bucket. <laughs> okay, so putting aside our debate, you know, this is, yeah. I mean, I love this. This is great. I like it when we disagree. But yeah, putting that to one side, um, maybe we'll have to come back to it in another episode specifically on <laughs> debatable sociopaths or child sociopaths. Um, so the twist, let's discuss the twist. Were you were you mm. surprised? Well, should I? Do you want to say what the twist is? 
the the twist is that at the end we realise that uh, we go to an older um, uh, Bat Bryony played by Vanessa Redgrave, and we realise that she's been interviewed about her book, um, and the book is basically we we've just been seeing essentially her book acted out, and then she goes on to tell us that that um, that the last few sequences um, actually didn't happen, and that both her sister and um, James McAvoy, sorry, I should uh, both her sister and Robbie Turner died um, in the, uh, during the war. And so they never were reunited. And the sequences we see at the end where Bryony goes to her sister to try and beg forgiveness and then Robbie's there. And there's this all like everyone gets to air their view. And it's, you know, like you imagine Mm. that would be there's almost a sense of closure for these characters. That never happened. That was fictionalized. So you are then realizing that you've and then it calls into account an unreliable narrator. Uh, The thing with the twist, Lily, I have to say, um, because I haven't rewatched it, which I will do, um, uh, you know, are we meant led to believe that the only thing that was made up was the the end sequence of of, of the characters coming together, or is the idea yeah. that we're now being told she was an unreliable narrator and perhaps she's doctored and tweaked uh, other parts of a story? Because without rewatching the film, I'd just like to ask you, as someone who's seen it a load of times, there's a sequence where in the Second World War she's asked to comfort a dying friend shol- soldier, and they talk like they're old friends and they know each other, and I was thinking are they do they or is this a thing that she wrote into the book to make herself look really good no i i don't <laughs> you hate briny <laughs> no i i don't know no, i think i i don't think you're meant it's not about making her seem good i think that she she is perceiving that what this wounded soldier who's confused needs is comfort and it won't be comforting to say to him, "No, you're mistaken. You're you're confused. I'm a, you're in lying in a hostel bed, and I'm your nurse." Right. That's how I read. The, see, that's the thing. That's how I read the scene when I watched it on as I was watching the film linearly. That's exactly my take on it. But then, because of the twist, the twist mm. made me go, "Ah, oh, th- that's th- th- what I'm trying to say." Is the twist made me rethink that? But I, I do agree right. with it. That's how yeah. I saw it on first path. Anyway, sorry. But no, I mean, having said that, I mean, obviously, all these things are open to interpretation. But what I, I so I think as my reading of Brownie is so much more sympathetic than yours perhaps for me that <laughs> that that scene is about so the whole film is about storytelling and the power both good and bad of telling stories and I guess misinformation and misinterpretation or or, or, or lies and so I think that that scene to me I always read it as showing the the power the positive power mm. of lying telling basically tales. almost as the sort of counteraction to what we've seen so far, which is the the very the damage they can do and what she's done. So you see both the destructive and also the kind of the the positive, the 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 virtue of it too. So you get both sides of it, I think. Yeah, that that's you're so right. Actually, I I had not thought of it like that. It's the kind of that that Bryony's been problem. Bryony through her uh, fictional storytelling has destroyed someone's lives or people's lives through through what she did and then but then you're seeing that but the positive side of it is that she was able to comfort somebody uh, a soldier dying of horrible wounds in their last last hours right yeah okay yeah that, that yeah that makes sense now it's that bloody tw- it's that bloody it's the bloody twist the bloody twist made me doubt myself of what i thought about <laughs> the film you see no i like see okay that's good that's good that's the power of a twist for me that twist is so so powerful and so moving because basically the what you come to understand and you're right like I couldn't even when I was watching it this time I couldn't remember at what point 
it stops, it becomes made up. And actually, you make mm. a very good point. Perhaps the whole thing is, you know, we can't really trust on anything we've seen because we learned that yeah. it, it's 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 Bryony's story. But it seems pretty clear that what actually, the, the bit that she points out is made up is this, the final scene where she goes to visit her sister and, and Robbie is there as well. And so the idea... Basically, what you realize when you get this reveal that no, they were never together. They because there's been a previous scene which did apparently happen, which is when Robbie and Cecilia meet for the first time in person since he's been in prison since that night in the in the library. They meet at a at a cafe, I think, for like a very very brief drink, like tea together, and they like have steal this kiss, but that's it. They they've been apart so long, and they're still waiting for each other. They're still longing for each other and they promise to meet when he gets time off because he needs to go back and she needs to go back to the hospital they can't really be together at that moment so you then when this twist reveals that that final scene where they are together where you've seen them kiss and they've obviously spent the night together in bed when it's revealed Mm. that that never happened for me it's like the most devastating thing in the world because you have this it makes you realize how much you wanted them to be together how you are empathizing Mm. so deeply with their longing and you're so you don't even realize it when you see it but when you're when it's taken away from you you realize that you were so relieved and so happy that they got to finally be together that they these two people who so deserve to have to to share their love never happened i literally yeah sobbing it's like the most powerful emotional twist i've ever seen it's yeah. It's really. It's a very strong, powerful twist for sure. And and I was I was as we we're just talking. I'm thinking about how the direct. I, I I do think that the twist is just limited to that confrontation at the end in in mm. uh, in uh, Cecilia's uh, um, apartment. And I think the reason is because of the story. It's not that subjective. We've just talked in Psycho about objective and subjective storytelling. Sorry, not very subjective. The the film does. Mm for long stints follow subjectively uh, Robbie's character in World mm. War Two in yeah. France you know so and also the same with Kieran you know we, we are at turns leaving Bryony behind it's not her story for big parts yeah. of the film but yeah. that sequence at the end that Bryony does claim that she invented um, is her story we follow her we are subjectively we follow her go to Kieran Knightley's house you know it's mm. told from her perspective the first time that she we see Robbie Turner it's a point of view shot from um, um, Romola Gary's um, character from Brian Italis. It's literally her point of view. If you watch that shot, it's not a wide shot. It's to- it's, it's her seeing uh, Robbie Turner. So it's her invention in her mind. So I do think the uh, filmmaker yeah. was very, very classily done that I think, you know, by, by the way he directs the scene, that that's a very subjective scene. But the rest of the film is kind of objective. You know, we see, well, actually, no, the other subjective bit is um, when Sir, when Barbryony, um remembers or when she when she sees the events that lead up to the arrest of Robbie that's also quite subjective I mean even when we go right into her eye at the end of the sequence but then we cut away from that and we're into World War Two, and that's more objective yeah I think I realize we should probably move on but I just quickly want to ask you what did you think of the scene in Dunkirk 
Oh yeah, I mean like a a, a masterclass uh, in in staging a scene, like a uninterrupted take. You know, I'm a big fan of a one, and that was a goddamn classy one. You know, uh, th- that was the one thing I knew about atonement. I oh, really. Yeah, I, I I picked that up on some like article about filmmaking that there was this like ten minute take, and yeah, it was a real treat. Yeah, really. Yeah, this brilliant tracking shot over the Dunkirk beach, and yeah, I I just think that's such a nice little bonus. <laughs> Because it's not, yeah. I mean, the, the war is, of course, so tied up with the story, but it's about these characters. And like we said, like there are other themes about storytelling that kind of are principally what the film is about. So it's this amazing kind of bonus that we get this incredible emotional scene. I honestly, I mean, I sobbed through that scene. You know, it makes me ponder World War Two and like the, the the futility of war. But the whole film, I literally was like crying from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> I always do. It's so good. It's 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 very. It got me emotional. I will say that. But you know, I'm I'm a stoic alpha. No, I'm an alpha male. I'm, I'm a stoic <laughs> man. I don't cry at movies, Lily. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're uber masculine. You wouldn't cry. <laughs> but yeah, so one I think day, I think day. with Psycho, it's very much like narrative twist. Subverting mm-hmm. our expectation of storytelling, atonement yep. is more like an emotional twist. Subverting sure. my or like making me confront my own emotions and feelings about the characters. Yeah. And so now to Parasite. So it was made in 2019, directed by Bong Joon Ho, and for a brief plot summary, if you haven't seen it, though, please do just watch it. It's fantastic. Um, it's about a family who are living in poverty and about how they manipulate their way into the service and actual homes of a wealthy family. Yeah. When I first watched it, I watched this when it came out, I thought, oh, right, the the parasite idea is the fact that this very poor family living in poverty are kind of pretending to, well, they invade this uh, the home of the wealthy one by pretending to be things that they're not, so that, and they're able to live off them uh, by being parasites. And that's that's kind of what I assume the title was referring to, which it mm. is, I guess it is, but yeah. but it's not only that. It's not only that, you, you know, as, as the film continues we suddenly realize that there's some other people who are living off this family and they are the another they're they're a more literal parasite who are in a deep deep basement under the house who only come out at night and snack and survive it's like oh right okay so so the twist there you know i don't know i wasn't as surprised by this twist when i saw the film oh really yeah i i i kind of felt like when when the film started, I thought there's got to be something more to this. It can't just be that this family are kind of invading the other family. And so I was kind of waiting for something. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, you can feel because so much happens so quickly. Yeah. There's a huge amount that goes on in the first half hour because, yeah, as we said, the, the Kim family, they, they manipulate their way into the home by pretending to not be related and they each take on different roles in the house. And is she just by pretending to have more qualifications and making and getting jobs that were available and then actually like pushing out uh the first the the driver of the father his driver they they get him fired and then bring their father in and then the housekeeper who has been in the house longer than the family the park family themselves so of course because all that happens so quickly you know something more has to happen where are we going with this but yeah yeah i mean I never try, and even like when you message me with atonement, being like, "Is it this?" <laughs> um, actually, just to talk about atonement. So, were you surprised when she's with by the twist in atonement? Um, I, 
was I surprised? Well, I, I knew there was a twist coming, and I thought it would be something to do with storytelling. I mean, my guess to you mm. was that what we were watching was a play. So um, I, I guess I was surprised. I'm not going to try to say I predicted it. Of course not. But I, I, it didn't. It was like within the wheelhouse of what I thought, which is Brian is a storytelling Stella, and what we've seen is to some extent a story. So, it, but but I didn't I didn't guess it for sure. You know, but but I guess I was kind of in the in the wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. I think because I never really. I don't ever think about what might be coming. I'm never thinking yeah. about whether or not there could be something more than this. Apart from when I'm watching like a horrible horror film and I'm like wanting it to end. So I start to try and anticipate <laughs> what could be coming yeah. just to prepare myself. But in general, <laughs> right. generally, I never really think about it. So for me... Uh. Um, I, I envy you, Lily. I envy you. My brain's my brain's just like a a, bol- a melting pot of like, ah, oh, the cinematography is nice, the lighting's doing this, and it's meaning this, and then it like, I wonder what the twist's going. Where's the plot going? And and yeah, yeah it's I hard never to do shut that. that down. I just, go, I think I just go uh-huh. with it. So <laughs> I wish I, I, I want that brain, please. I just want to, yeah. I, <sighs> I mean, yeah, because I, yeah, I, it means that my expectations are lower, so then I'm actually probably more more satisfied I guess <sighs> yeah yeah I don't know because, and, and it, my brain gets worse if I'm really disengaged with the film when we went to see In Fabric because I was not really getting into that film at all I, my brain went into super analysis mode because then it's like mm. this film's really bad how can I make it better so then I'm on top of all the stuff I would do on a good film I'm then trying to figure out how I would fix it just to keep myself engaged with the film so yeah yeah, yeah. It's, well yeah so it. okay yeah so with this film okay it might it, you know there's something more is going to happen. So, yeah, perhaps it mm. isn't a huge surprise. And also, I actually misremembered it. I thought that, you know, there's that chilling moment where the uh, the housekeeper hus- husband, Organ, say his head just, like, pops up. Yeah. You see his eyes ac- over the, like, the line of the staircase. And that is, like, very, yeah. very scary horror movie type shot. Because mm. I remember being so freaked out by that. I thought that that was the the reveal of how you discover that there's someone living under there ah, right, which I actually right, think yeah. they should have done I feel like yeah. they could have t- twisted it slightly so that you saw that first that would have been like oh powerful but instead um everything comes to a head in quite an e- a sort of epic scene at the house where there, there's a race downstairs and then yes the reveal is is that we didn't really explain it very clearly and we're going for spoilers no, we're just, sorry. so so basically the big the reveal is once this family uh, have infiltrated the house and the park family are away for the weekend the kims are taking full advantage and all their drinking their booze and eating their food um and then the housekeeper comes back to the house saying that she's forgotten something in the basement and the Mm. reveal is is that her husband has been living in the basement for years because he they have no money no house and just loads and loads of like loan sharks coming after them so he literally has been hiding out in the bomb shelter that is under the house that they, the park family themselves don't know about. And like you said, yeah, it's an additional kind of parasite there. Another an, another more literal parasite who is literally living by eat, stealing food and drinking from the family. And and he he kind of loves the father, the patriarch of the Park family, you know, so he kind of worships him to a degree be, or he respects him because he's provided for his life, even though he's unaware of him. I love the bit at the end where it all kind of kicks off at the end and there's a big showdown and uh, the, the, the kind of the husband who's been in the basement for years, he's, he kind of talks to uh, 
Mr. Park, the father. Um, and he says, do I know, do you know me? Cause, cause it's a one sided relationship. One's completely unaware of the other, but the other one owes their livelihood to this person, which is fascinating. Mm. But I, I think as well, I, I enjoyed Parasite again. I enjoyed it this second time around a bit more because I think you're right. Like some of the th- elements that you would say are scary. This isn't really a horror film. It's more a social commentary that wears wears kind of hori- like slightly horrific dressing because I think if you're going to play it more for horror or for tension, you would eke out the idea that there's something else in the house that the Kim fa- both Kim and Park yeah, families right. yeah. are unaware of. Where it, it doesn't because they say that the idea those the eyes emerging from the basement is a spooky image and. You you would think you'd eke that out a bit more like what is going on but it's more you... you're right the reason that you're right I take it back why I said that they sh- it would have been, it would have been more of a like powerful twist if there had been the mm. other way around with the scenes because you're right the whole point is is that this isn't that there are hor- horror elements but the main thing is that this is a satire and a social commentary yeah and and even and even the fact that so we get this this the shot of the of him popping up that's scary. The reason we see that is because we're being told that the son of the Park family, he has been traumatized ever since he saw a ghost in the house. So at yes. the point where you hear that and then you see this scene, you understand that what he saw was some the husband who's living under that, which in itself kind of speaks to the fact that the Park family, this this wealthy family, they want the people who work for them and lower classes to basically be like ghosts in their life. They don't want to see them. And they're and yeah. when they are confronted by them, they're scared by it. They don't like it. So it's yeah, a, yeah. so so you're right. So the point of that kind of creepy moment is I think to emphasize that is that as how yeah. the Park family is seeing them. And even and that twist, you're right, it may not be the most unexpected twist. And perhaps it is it does border on more of just a surprise than rather a big twist. Yeah. I would say it's more like a social I think it's a thematic twist. Yes, it's a thematic twist because it's basically with that with this reveal, you understand the full story that's being, or the full the full message that's being explored and trying to the film is trying to speak to. Um, yeah, which I think is is that what you think this film is when you're watching it initially up until that point is the, almost the classic upstairs downstairs mm. film of like the wealth the wealthy classes versus the poor class these two classes and then once you yeah. get the reveal of this poorer family you up until then you feel so fu- you you do feel deeply for the kim family because even though they're they're scheming and manipulative and do yeah, a, such a, great like, schemers terrible terrible things they are living in in serious poverty and and are at kind of in a very critical point. So you kind of think it can't get much worse. So you understand really where this is coming from. And then you see this other family who are in an even worse situation. This man is literally yeah. living in a in a bomb shelter, having to live off the scraps that he can find in the house. And uh and basically so the reveal is is that it's not between wealthy and poor, it's between poor and poorer. The battle is between yep. the two of them. The wealthy just sit across the top and then suddenly all these other metaphors, you know, that the whole notion of like the wealthy living on top of the poor, you know, what when they hide, there's a scene where the the the, the Park family come home and the Kim family have to hide under the coffee table while the Park parents are lying on the sofa. They're literally lying on top of them. 
You know, there's this up yep. and down stairs. There's a lot of vertical metaphors, like you know, when when the Kim family return to their weird quasi basement apartment, they're going down loads and loads of stairs. There's lots of descents down, like exactly you say, that having gone there up and up to the house. And even with yeah. the, the when they're eating the the noodles, when they come home and the part the mother of the part family has asked them to have these noodles made. I was watching this video where it talks about the significance of food in the film, and those noodles that's a com- combination of ramen and udon. And, uh, and this is like a commonly eaten food for most people in Korea. It's like very cheap meal. And so there's this subtext of the mother saying to this, saying that it's her son's favorite food, that like she might be a little bit ashamed or embarrassed at that, that her son would like love this like cheap meal. So like, let's put some steak on top of it to bring it up. And again, it's like fancy food lying on a bed of the cheaper food. There's like all this <laughs> symbolism that we, right, right. That, that suddenly all comes together once you see that there is this family living an, in the basement or this man living in the basement, living off of them. And ultimately you see that actually the true parasites are the wealthy family because they're the ones who are living off the work and the energy, everything of the people below them. So I, I, it, right, it yeah. all ties together perfectly <laughs> with this reveal, even though it's not super unexpected. But what the twist does as well, we like to say, it's, it's furthering the the theme and also the fact that it's it's about the poor and the very poor. And then suddenly the Kims who you've been, even though, like you say, the schemers, you are sympathetic to their plight, but then they, they decide they need to dispose of um, the the very poor people, the, the, the former house uh, maid and uh, the, the husband and... They're very, there's no attempt to try and work together. So suddenly your loyalty or your uh, sympathy for the Kims shifts now, you know, and you now, which was a surprise, you know, you realize because the way that they treat the others rather than, rather than feeling like kinship or working together to fuck over the park somehow, that's not even, that's not even considered. No, but I think, I mean, absolutely. Though, I mean, to be honest, I didn't have a, watching it the first time, I didn't have a huge amount of sympathy for them anyway because they were doing so many terrible things up until that point anyway. It was almost, I mean, it did take it to another level for sure. And you're like, whoa, Mm. you know, they end up killing the housekeeper and and tying up the housekeeper's husband who know you know they didn't know what was going to happen to him if he'd be okay after that they were yeah they're like completely ruthless but I think that's what makes it more of a satire than anything else because I feel like what the film is really saying is this is what happens when you have so much inequality capitalism is built on profound inequality and what that leads to is not you know the wealthy like being generous to the poor and helping them like bring up and 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 also the idea that the the Kim family are so ingenious they have this amazing drive amazing ingenuity and cunning but ultimately what happens is that everything they do leads only to them sinking lower down and worse off and I think that is the message that the notion that if you work hard you're going to rise up we see the people at the top the wealthy family none of them are hard workers they're lazy and entitled and treat people terribly whereas the Kim family who yes ruthless they are the opposite they're super hardworking. but th- that's yeah. the point is that you know no matter what you do within this construct the social structure that we have you'll only you can't ever truly rise up you'll only ever battle with the other people at the bottom and none of you will succeed i mean it's grim as far it's depressing <laughs> that's amazing lily Thank you, you, i i hadn't my brain wasn't anywhere close to the, the the reading that you've got of it, but that's spot on. Yeah, thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> well, it's just, <laughs> like, yeah. I think you can take it another way, which is that like, 
um, poor people are inherently terrible and will always be terrible. I did read, I remember at the time watching the movie, reading that interpretation, but I think it's, there is so much that in, in the film that, that takes you, shows you the other way. <laughs> like that yeah. it's not, it's not that. I think it's that, it, yeah, I, I think it's just more about the structures, you know? Because even the, I remember Mr. Uh, Mr. Kim, the father, he actually says that the Park family, they're okay. Like they're, they're not bad people, particularly. It is, you know, it's just the, yeah. the structures of society around them. It's not that they're not the inherently bad people. No, no, I don't, I, I don't think inherently, no, but they definitely, there definitely is this, this notion that everyone buys into of like we're at this level you'll never come up to this level that smell will always be there you know this whole thing about smell but yeah but yeah I think that's why yes you're right the twist isn't super unexpected because something has to we have to be leading yeah. somewhere they've they've managed whenever they've got they've succeeded in what they wanted to do so it's all going to come crumbling down of course but I think it is such a genius twist for tying together this message this kind of theme that, that the yeah. film explores absolutely and, and, and another a, another different type of twist to the previous two films so yeah i you know i i do think that these are very very strong twist films as far as you know you do, i i didn't feel cheated with any of them you know i felt i felt they worked perfectly for the for the films i think it, i think it's because as you said you're right is that if they work well when they fit the when they tie in perfectly with whatever the film is trying to explore. It's not just a random yeah. twist to just pull yeah, the rug not, from under your feet. None of none of them are rug pulls or or the ones that let's say Psycho you could arguably say are a bit more rug pull, but <laughs> they still work. But the, but they're rug pulls with a purpose. They're meant to disorient you. They they signal a shift in uh, perspective and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lily, it's been a wonderful chat, but I just wondered, do you have time for another visit to the film pharmacy? <laughs> I do, I do. Bring it on. Okay, well, we have a, uh, a little uh, email we got here from one of our listeners. I'll just read it out for us. So we've got, help, I'm in a film stupor. Please help me reawaken my excitement and passion for movies and the power and magic they have to thrill and overwhelm our senses. It feels like the last truly great film I saw was Embrace of the Serpent, and that was eight years ago. Surely something good has been made in this time. Please prescribe me a dose of the good shit. I love this question. Very good. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, it, it's you know, it's it's what I what I think we have a, a bit of a concern for is are movies becoming less impressive? Are we are we seeing the end of movies? Is is there less good stuff out there, or or do we just need to point them in the right direction? <laughs> oh God, that's such a good, I no. I mean, I think there's always going to be good stuff being made. It's just whether or not you can easily find it Access and see it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Embrace of the Serpent, my God, I, I vaguely remember that movie and it's proper like highbrow movie making from what I recall. Did you see it, James? I didn't, but it looked really interesting. So I feel slightly ashamed. But but this has prompted me to uh, get it on that uh, to watch list. I'm not going to lie. I think I will now. Now that we're having this conversation, I think I will give it a rewatch. But I seem to recall finding it a little bit too highbrow for my taste. It went oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> So, so I take my health to this to this listener, um, uh, but I would say, um, well, to be honest, what springs to mind first and foremost is Parasite because I really watching it again this time. I was really taken with how well it. Oh, it's how how really beautifully it's shot and yeah, incredibly shot, and then like 
perfectly tells this this story and explores, like I said, this like theme and these issues. Um, but we did just spoil the whole thing, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like apparently it takes six weeks to forget a hot spoiler. So maybe come oh, really? back to it in a few <laughs> months' time. Um, the other thing I'd recommend is Tar that we we talked about a lot. I know, uh, but were you going to say that? I was going to say absolutely. I was going to say the same as you, which is like it's a recommendation. But I want to give you something else because we've already talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. But yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you. Tar gave me that feeling of watching an important film that was yeah. really interestingly made, and like it felt like a cinema experience. So yeah, I'm totally exactly. with you on Tar. Totally, yeah, yeah. But I had the same thoughts that I need something else because we have talked about it a lot. So the other one I would say is I think it wasn't I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't my favorite movie ever. But I think if you liked Embrace the Surfer, from what I recall, you might perhaps like Drive My Car, uh, the 2021 Japanese film by Ryosuke Ramaguchi. Um, that's incredibly beautifully shot and very moving and it was too highbrow for me so it might be for you <laughs> okay so, well well i was i was i was thinking cuz i was thinking i want to pull something a little bit arty out of the bag but something a bit challenging i get the i get the impression from this question that you want something that makes him feel something so mm, yeah. I, it's not it's not it's, this is not going to be for everybody but the last film in the past year or so that really got to me like that was uh, the house that jack built by lars von trier which is uh, like oh, yeah. a very yeah, it's it's very intense. It's it's, but you know, you certainly feel something, and it's not going to be for everybody. Um, but you know, it's a again, cut just a little callback to the theme of objective and subjective view uh, viewpoint. This is like a totally uh, subjective view of a serial killer. Told you know, you are with this character almost from every single frame of the film. Oh, I still haven't seen it. I really want to see that. I said to it's James, intense. oh, should we do it for the podcast? And James was like, no, no, it's too heavy. I don't want to see yeah. it. <laughs> Way too heavy. But as a film pharmacy recommendation, no problem. <laughs> Please do. Well, if you watch any of these films, do let us know. And if you would like to submit a dilemma or a or a film recommendation query to the film pharmacy, we'd love to receive it. We'd love you it. Can, you can DM us. Uh, our Instagram is at groovymoviespod or you can email us as well. It's groovymoviespod at gmail.com. And if you would like to subscribe to us and if you could leave us a review, it will all help to just reach more of an audience. Exactly. Yep. So thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Instagram at GroovyMoviesPod or email us GroovyMoviesPod at gmail.com. Groovy Movies was produced and edited by Lily Austin. Music and sound by James Brailsford. Our logo was designed by Abby Joe Sheldon. For references and more information about the films discussed, check out the show notes.